Welcome to 715. My name is AJ, one of the pastors here at Grace. We are week three of our series, Death to Life, Romans 8. Um, you guys have a booklet for this? Did you get one on the way in? Okay, make sure you get this on the way in or on your way out. Bring it back with you. Um, I'm going to jump right into my message here in about 30 seconds. We don't have time every night to give you the whole context of Romans, the authorship, the date, all that background, but we put it here for you. We've defined some terms. We've given you space for notes to give you a robust um, uh, uh, context of this book because the book of Romans, um, it's helpful for me to think of it as like a symphony, like a piece of music that is complex, it builds, there are reprises, there are things Paul says early that he then repeats later, there are things he elaborates in great depth, and once you've grasped that, later he can use a short phrase, and it, and it brings to mind what you heard before. And so as, you, as we study Romans 8, I encourage you at least study Romans 5 through 8, although the books, the chapters of the Bible are short enough, study Romans 1 through 8. And then you're halfway done with the book. You can finish it, Romans 1 through 16. Um, but that is going to help you. And so tonight, as I go through our text, there's going to be a lot of callbacks. There's going to be a lot of reprise moments where we look back at Romans 7, Romans 5, and we see what, what, Paul, uh, what Paul has said uh, and what that means for us. Uh, last week, last two weeks, really, Pastor Corey did such a masterful job uh, bringing this text to life. And we thank God for Pastor Corey. I just... Um, there's very few other people I want to give 45 minutes to just preach the gospel to me other than Pastor Corey. He's, he's way up. He's in my top three, I think. Um, and he just brought it to life, and it was great. You're just soaking in the truth and the goodness and the free gift of the gospel. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, this is where we start, this is where we stand, and this is where we stay. Tonight, we're going to look at how God did that. How is there no condemnation? So let's jump right into our text. We're going to pick up right where he left off. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Here's what it says. You can read along on the screen. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's pray. Father God, would you come and have your way with us tonight? Would you illuminate this text, Holy Spirit, that it would stir something deep, deep within us? Um, help me, God, to be clear uh, and to be simple. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, there's a lot of ground to cover in this, in this, in this text, um, but the premise is this. God has done something that the law could not do. 
And if you remember the context of Romans just very briefly, Paul is writing to the churches in Rome. And what's happened in Rome is that years prior, all of the Jews were removed from Rome by decree. And then that decree was lifted and they were welcomed back in, or they were at least allowed back in. And so you have a church that is made up of Gentiles that was started there by Gentiles. And now the Jews are returning. And there's this this clash of custom, of tradition, of what is truth, who is Jesus, what role does the law have to play. And so the reason we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about the law tonight is because this is what was so sticky in the minds of the church that Paul writes to. What role does the law play? Now for us, we don't necessarily have that big tension, but we do have the tension of bringing moralism to our faith. God will approve me if I behave well. And when I behave poorly, God disproves of me. And the better I am, the more God loves me, and the worse I am, the less God loves me, which is that's just fundamentally wrong. But that's what we wrestle with, moralism or legalism and things like this. So I think it's applicable. Um, but here's it's the same misunderstanding that we have um, about ourselves today that we bring to the text about the Jews. It's, I think, a common understanding to think that Uh, Before Jesus, the law existed to bring salvation to the Jews. So if you obeyed the law, that was your means of salvation. And, And I don't think that's true. Because God gives the law to Moses. And you've got from Adam to Moses before God has given his law. You've got Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, all these great men and women of the Bible Joseph, the one who brings God's people into Egypt in his technicolor dream coat, then they produce and they multiply and there are too many, and so then they flee from Egypt, led by, by Moses. Moses takes them out of Egypt. Egypt, for us, as we study the Bible, is the symbol and picture of sin or of bondage or of captivity. It is God's saving grace to rescue us out of an Egypt and bring us into a promised land. And that's what he has done by Moses' leadership. He has rescued them out of Egypt, through the Red Sea, to the foot of Mount Sinai, and that's when he gives them the law. So how can the law save the Israelites when God has already rescued them? So, So I don't think that the law was intended to bring salvation to the Jews. I think what the law was intended to do was to, well, I know, I know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not thinking up here. I'm just saying that to make us all feel like I studied it. Um, <laughs> God brought them to the foot of Mount Sinai and he makes a covenant with them. And he gives the law as the terms of the covenant, the terms of the agreement. I will be your God, you will be my people, I will make you a, a nation of priests. You will be the go-between between all the other nations of the world adhere and follow these commands. The nations of the world will know what I, what God is like by the way that you, Israel, live. If you adhere to these laws, the nations of the world will see a people that are set apart and are different from them because of rituals, because of customs. They'll see a God who cares about social justice and morality and the fair treatment of the poor and, and um, all the richness, health and even the right ways to uh, 
manage your body and things like this. They will see what I am like by the way that you live. So that is, that is, our, that is our role. The law is intended to set us apart so that others can see God. That's what it's intended to do. In our little definitions, and I think Corey even said it last week, um, he used this phrase, which I think is, is wonderful. The law is not a ladder you climb, it's a wall that you collide into. What does that mean? When we think of the law, the Ten Commandments, as a ladder we climb to get to God, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Okay, I got that one down, God. Right? Thou shalt not lie. Yeah, I'm good on that, God. Thou shalt not murder. I'm good. And, and I guess the picture is what, at the end of the day, you, you get to God, you achieve some state of being, that's, that's not what the law does. What the law does, we smash into it because when we look at even just the Ten Commandments, you go, I can't, I can't do that. I mean, I fall short of that every time. In fact, when God first gives the law in Leviticus, he gives a list of laws and then there's stories of the people disobeying the laws. Then there's more laws, and then there's stories of those people breaking those laws. So from the first generation of people to whom God gave the law, they were not able to follow the law. So God gives the law again in Deuteronomy, uh, which means the second giving of, of the law. And before they enter into the promised land, before Moses dies and passes leadership over to Joshua, Moses addresses the people. And this is what he says. It's basically his farewell speech of sorts. He says this. I got slides tonight. This is in Deuteronomy 31, verse 27, 29. This is Moses speaking to the people in the second giving of the law before they enter the promised land. I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? For I know that after my death, you will surely act corruptly and turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. What is Moses saying? I know, I know what's in your heart. You're, it's rebellious and it's stubborn and it is resistant, and it is hostile to the way of God. And here I am with you, the one who led you out, and even with me watching, you violate the law. When I'm gone, I know exactly what's going to happen. There's something fundamentally within you that is, that is broken, that is incapable of following the law. The law is designed to show us the right way to be, yet we smash up into it when we face the reality that none of us can. That in fact, what Paul says in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. So what happens? Well, Moses is right. In fact, while Moses is receiving the law, what are the Israelites doing? They're, they're building a golden calf to worship. Like, they haven't even gotten it yet and they're violating it. Joshua's generation, they fall short. Then come the judges. Read the book of Judges. It's like a tragedy. It's just failure after failure after failure after failure of these leaders who fall short of the principles of a righteous life as God has laid out. Then so they demand a king. So we get King Saul. What happens with King Saul? He fails. Then we get David, who's close. He's a man after God's own heart. 
but I can't say David without you thinking Bathsheba. So even David falls short and his son even rebels against him. Solomon builds the temple, makes Israel a wealthy nation. What does he ultimately end up doing? He ultimately just turns Israel back into Egypt, this wealthy power that now worships many other gods. He falls short. Look at the book of Kings. There's only a few kings that are even noted as being good, and we know they, too, could not fully uphold the law. There's hundreds of years of the people of God falling short of the requirement of the law, and hundreds of years of the greatest men and women of the Bible falling short of the requirement of the law. What is God doing? He is weaving into the story of humanity in the story of history, that there is none, not one, no king, no warrior, no prophet, and no priest who is good enough to fulfill the requirement of the law and make peace between heaven and earth. What does the law do? It shows to us the brokenness and the selfishness in our inability to act correctly. And this is not even something that I need to elaborate on or illustrate. I can do it with just a few words. New Year's resolutions. <laughs> diets. Exercising. Waking up early. <laughs> quitting that. I mean, I, I, can, I can go on. There is, everybody listening has something in their life they wish they could start doing and something in their life they wish they could stop doing. And the best rules and principles and standards and practices have accomplished nothing towards changing your heart. Because the human heart cannot be transformed by willpower. And the human heart cannot be transformed by rules, and it cannot be transformed by practices, and it cannot be transformed by principles. What do they do? They instead highlight to us the brokenness, the insufficiency, the selfishness, and our just straight up lack of ability to do the things we want to do and that we know are right to do. And it's not like we want to screw it up. It's not like we're going, I want to fail at this. I want to be a jerk to this person. I want to get way too angry and lose. And I want to cuss this. And this we're not going like, I can't wait to do that. It's like our bodies are working against us. Do you feel that? It's like, yes, if I went to the gym every day, had a workout routine and ate more whole foods, I know I would sleep better. I would be more mentally clear. I would have better energy. I know that. I don't need anybody to tell me that. And yet when it comes time to do it, my body is like, no, don't stay where you are. Don't get up. And I'm like at war with something within Adhering and upholding to the standard of the law is something we cannot do. Let's look at our passage. 8.3. For God has done. What was I just saying? 
Adhering fully to the righteous requirement of the law is something we cannot do. For God has done. Say it one more time until you get it. Fully adhering to the righteous requirement of the law is something I cannot do. For God has done what the law could not do. I'm going to preach to this one person. It's the title of the message. For God has done. For God has done. Who did it? God has done it. God has done it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to break this passage apart uh, verse by verse. And I hope in doing so, one, we learn a lot, but I, and one of the things I hope that we learn is this is how we're, we're going to interrogate this scripture. And so part of what we're hoping to do with this series, it, you know, we hear almost every Sunday, read your Bible every day. And a lot of us go home and go, how? And then where? This thing is huge. There's so many words. Where do I start? How do I do it? And so there's, there's, um, there's some help in that booklet, and I'm going to have you help me interrogate this passage, okay? We're going to have fun with it. So we read the scripture. For God has done. So my question, what has God done? Look at it. What has God done? God has done something that the law could not do. Okay, so God has done something that the law could not do. So that begs uh, a question for me. If God has done something that the law could not do, uh, what couldn't the law do? If he did something the law couldn't do, what couldn't the law do? And this is one of these reprise moments, okay? So if you've read the whole letter, you know what Paul, is, what Paul has just said about this in chapter 7, right before, where in Romans 7, verse 10, he says, the very commandment, the law, the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death to me. So the law was intended to produce life in me. And yet what did it produce? It produced, produced death in me. So what couldn't the law do? The law couldn't produce Life in me. And think about that. This is what Paul says in chapter 7. He says, before I knew the law, I didn't know sin. But then once I saw the law, sin, it was, it was, I, was, I was awakened to the reality that I am dead. Because before you know God says, do not lie, you lie and you don't suffer any consequences. You don't think about it. You just, maybe your mom or dad said, don't do it. But okay, I'll make my own decisions. I'm my own person. But then when God says, thou shalt not lie, you go, but I've been lying. I'm dead. So the knowledge of the law doesn't produce life in you. It produces, it produces the reality that you are dead. So why couldn't the law produce life. The law couldn't produce life, he says it, because it's weakened by the flesh. Our inability to uphold to the standard of the law is because, that's what Moses said, 
I, there's, there's something wrong with your heart. It's rebellious and it's stubborn. And even while I'm here, you disobey. And I know as soon as I'm gone, it's going to be like all hell breaks loose out here. There is something in our flesh in that something is called sin. Because Paul says, is it really the law that produces death in me? No, the law is good. The law is spiritual. The law is holy. The law is a gift from God to us to set us apart that others would see God through the way that we live. The law is not wrong. It is sin that's within me that is killing me. He says in Romans 7, 18, 19, I won't put it on the screen. He just says, I, and this is us. This is us to a T. This is, this is the point I'm trying to make. Romans 7, 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want, that's what I keep on doing. There is something broken within me. As hard as I try, as motivated as I get, as inspired and as held accountable as I can be, there is just something that is off within me. My flesh is weak. Okay. So, how then? So God, what did God do? God did something the law could not do. Why couldn't he do it? The law is supposed to produce life. It produces death. He couldn't do it because our flesh is weak. So then how did God do what the law could not? And the answer is in your text. I know some of y'all are not looking at your Bible, but that's okay. Teacher's notes. Oh, there's a, there's a test at the end of this series. Did I tell you that? No. Some of y'all had anxiety. <laughs> Sorry about that. How did God do what the law could not do? There it is. He condemned sin in the flesh. Okay. Paul's words are careful. This is an orchestra. This is a symphony. Did he condemn Jesus in the flesh? Did he? Okay. Did he condemn you in the flesh? What did he condemn in the flesh? So there's something within my flesh that is wrong. It's like I've been infected from the garden. Try as hard as I might, I cannot. I cannot do the things I want to do. And that thing, Paul says in 7, is not just, it's not knowledge of the law. It's the sin within me that causes me to violate the law. And that sin is what God extracts and condemns. Interrogate the text. How did he condemn sin in the flesh? How does he do that? So this is how dense and rich this text is. And again, it's just in verse 3. How did God condemn sin in the flesh? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, or in other words, as a sin offering, which would be a sacrifice to pay the price of sin, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Consider a couple things. Paul's language here, super intentional. Gee, he sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
That's on purpose what he says. If he had sent his son in sinful flesh, it would have compromised Jesus' sinlessness and therefore his deity. He could not be God if he was walking in sinful flesh. If Paul said he sent his son in the likeness of flesh, it would compromise Jesus' humanity. Yeah, he came kind of like in the flesh. He looked like he was in the flesh, but he wasn't really. Jesus needs to be fully God so that he can be a worthy sacrifice, so that he can walk sinless. He needs to be fully man so he can be a worthy sacrifice, so he can pay the price for sinful man. Or it's what Paul says so beautifully in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him, God made Christ, to be sin, the one who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Here's another one of these reprise moments, these symphonic moments that spring to life if you've been reading along, if you've been studying the passage, you go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he fulfills the requirement and brings us righteousness. This is what Paul was just saying in Romans 5. Just right before, when he says, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, he's talking about Adam in the garden, one man's disobedience, which infects us all with sin. By one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. One act of sin and disobedience produces death in all of us, the infestation of sin in all of us, this thing we cannot shake, and yet one act of righteousness and obedience produces justification for salvation for many. John Murray says it beautifully like this. In that same nature, and what he's, that, he's talking about the human nature, in the same human nature, in the same nature, which in all others was dominated and directed by sin. God condemned sin and overthrew its power. Jesus not only blotted out sin's guilt and brought us nigh to God, he also vanquished sin as power and set us free from its enslaving dominion. And this could not have been done except in the flesh. The battle was joined And the triumph secured in the same flesh, which in us is the seat and agent of sin. Praise be to God. So what does that do for all of us? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering. What does that do? It fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. Interrogate the text. What is the righteous requirement of the law? Put simply, for those who violate the law, the wages of sin is death. Romans 6.23. Why did it cost a life? Because that's the price. That's what needed to be paid. And he, and he paid it. It's another reprise moment. Paul has just finished saying in Romans 7 
that the law is binding on a man only up until death. Think about this. If there's a married couple and one spouse passes, we consider that marriage covenant to then have, to have ended at that point. This is what Paul says. You are, you are released from that law. Think of it another way. Um, if you've been convicted of a crime and you pass away before your sentence is carried out, they don't continue to enforce the sentence, right? Death releases you from the bondage and the penalty of the law. And in Romans 7, 4, Paul has just said, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong now to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. The law is binding as long as you live and you have died through the body of Christ. <laughs> Hallelujah. When we do, ba- go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Worship God. When we do baptism, we say you've been baptized into the body of Christ. Why? Because that's the body that stayed. Well, that's the body that de- died, but then was raised. Um, and so we are baptized into that. And so we too then have died to the law. So what does that mean? What does all this mean? The righteous requirement of the law has been fulfilled. The adherence to the law, which we have just talked about for hundreds of years, the greatest men and women with the best rules and the tangible presence of God with them, none of them could do it. None of them could uphold the terms of the covenant at Mount Sinai. None have come and who have been able to make peace between heaven and earth except that now it has. One has come. The terms of that covenant at Sinai have been fulfilled. So what does that mean? It means we need a new covenant. The terms of that covenant have been met by Jesus. We need a new covenant. And what did we learn about the old covenant? We learned about the old covenant that we're unable to adhere to the law. We're not, we're not good at that. We, we, we learn with the old covenant that there's something within us that's broken. It's like our bodies fight against us. It's like our bodies resist the ability and the desire to do what is right. We learned in the old covenant that even the greatest and best among us fall short of the standard. It's like we need new hearts. It's like we, we, it's, it's like we need what's inside of us to, to be changed. And it's like what we, what we don't need is a list of rules on a wall that we look at and try to follow. It's like if, if that law could be within us, if it, could be, if it could come out from the inside of us, if what's in us could change, then maybe, maybe we could adhere to, new, to the new covenant. And God knows this. It takes us a long time to learn it. But God knew it because he spoke it through his prophet Ezekiel. <laughs> you guys, this is, this is, let's take it away. This is, just be in awe of God. This is ridiculous. <laughs> Hundreds of years before Christ comes, God not only diagnoses, but through man prophesies what we need and what the solution will be. 
I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'm going to put within you. And I'm going to remove the heart of stone from your flesh. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. He's going to give us his spirit that's going to do what the flesh cannot do. He's going to take that stubborn heart Moses is talking about. You're rebellious and you're stubborn and you can't do it. God says, I'm going to take that. I'm going to give you a new one. And I'm going to put my spirit there. And my spirit is the one that's going to be with you. It's going to help you walk according to the word. And it's going to help, help you obey my commands, following my statutes. And then Jeremiah says this. He says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make, oh my goodness. I'm playing, I wrote it. I, yeah, but, but still, stay with me. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Remember, we talked about this through Moses to Mount Sinai. That's my covenant, by the way, that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, which is to say a faithful partner. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the promise and the beauty of what God is weaving into the tapestry of humanity's story. And it's, and it's culminating and it's climaxing here in Romans 8 as Paul says, I'll read it now in full. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And then there's this interesting qualifier, because that's not where that verse ends. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And when we first read that, we might have gone, oh, what is that? Okay, what is, we'll come back to that, I guess. What does that mean? But now when you read it, you go, oh, yeah, that makes perfect sense. If I walk according to my flesh... I don't have a shot. Like, I, I, I don't even have a chance. Not even an iota of an opportunity to do well. I will trip on my first step. But if I walk according to the Spirit, the Spirit He's going to put in me, the Spirit that's going to cause me to walk in His commands, the Spirit that's going to help me have His law written on my heart so it's not something I aspire to. It's something that radiates from within me. It's the desire within me. If I do that... Righteous requirement of the law is going to be, is going to be fulfilled. Amen. And here we get to what is basically part two of my message. I'm going to move quick. Don't be afraid. It is quick. It's the second great benefit of this passage. I was telling Tellus, this is really like two messages, but we're going, to, we're going to make it work here. The first great benefit of this passage is that sin has been condemned in the flesh. It's been removed. It's been condemned. We now stand justified before God. Great. 
The second great benefit is that we can now overcome sin in our life. Now we can overcome sin in our life. Why? Because there is therefore now no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because sin was condemned. And God has given us his spirit. So what does that mean we can do? Now we can overcome sin in our life. And we know, as we've clearly established, any real change that we hope to see in our life cannot be motivated by willpower, rules, or mandates. Any real change that's going to happen in our life has to be inspired by the work of the Spirit. So interrogate the text. How do you know if you're in the Spirit? Paul makes it simple. What are you fixing your mind on? What are you focusing on? What are you thinking about? What are you looking at? What are you preoccupied with? He makes a clear line between thinking and living. Why? Just think about it logically. What you think in your mind becomes the things that you say out of your mouth. The things you say out of your mouth become the things you believe in your heart. This is why we tell you don't speak negatively to yourself. Speak life over yourself and faith over others. Because what you say becomes what you believe. And what you believe becomes what you do. And what you do testifies to who you are. So what you think becomes what you say. What you say becomes what you believe. What you believe is what you do. And what you do testifies to who you are. So if your mind is fixed on the things of the Spirit, then you can walk accordingly. To the Spirit. Said in another way, your life is moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. If we fix our mind on the flesh, Paul says, we find death because our flesh is infected with sin. But if we fix our mind on the things of the Spirit, we find life and peace. And this was radical because. C.A. Anderson Scott says, Paul as a Jew had thought that men should keep the law in order that they might be saved. But as a Christian, he saw that men must be saved in order that they can keep the law. So is the law wicked? No, the law is not evil. The law sets us apart that others can see the righteousness of God. The law is good. But Paul is saying at the end of this passage in 7 and 8 is critical. Your mind is not neutral ground it's not for seven and eight the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to god it doesn't submit to god's law it cannot those who are in the flesh cannot please god a mind that is fixed on the flesh is not neutral to God. It is hostile to God. It is against God. But a mind that is fixed on the things of the spirit bring life and they bring peace. So it's my last question and we're almost done. We're very close. What are the things of the spirit? I'll just give you two. How do we fix our mind on the things of the spirit? I think one has to do with that which we desire in life. What do we desire to do? So the question I'm really posing here regards sin. Whether that sin and our, and our preferences and our desires, are they innate within us? Are they choices that we make? Let me make it very, very real and very tangible and very sticky. If you wrestle with same-sex attraction, is that an innate desire within you or is that a choice that you make? 
Guess I shouldn't have gone there. But we're already there and I got to finish the thought. It doesn't matter. The question is, what do you desire most? I don't desire the sin in my life. I don't, I don't love it. Not a big fan of it. Wish I didn't have it. And yet it, it rises up within me. I don't know where that came from. Was I born this way? Did I develop habits at a young age? It doesn't matter. What do I desire more? And I'm telling you, I desire Jesus more than I desire the fulfillment of my flesh. I just do. I want him more than I want to be satisfied in the earth because in him is the best version of myself. And when I walk in the spirit and when I'm in the presence of God and when I'm worshiping and receiving, I am the best version of myself. I'm the one I like the most. And when I give in to the desires of the passions of the flesh, it's the version of me I hate and I don't want. So what do I do? I fix my eyes on Jesus and I focus on him and how good he is to me and how righteous and faithful and loving and kind and merciful he has been to me. And when I fix my eyes there, I don't desire that stuff. I just don't anymore. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus and to take him at his word. It's nothing sweeter. It's nothing sweeter. What do you desire? Fix your eyes and your mind on the things you desire most. And the other example I give you is in your adoption. It's in your identity. Where Paul is going, and in a couple weeks, Pastor Sean will bring this to life. He talks about our adoption as sons and co-heirs with Christ. This is where Paul is moving us. He is showing us that we are adopted, we are loved, and we are welcomed by God. You want to fix your mind on the things of the Spirit? Fix your mind on the fact that you are adopted, you are loved, you are welcomed, you are approved, you are justified by God. Your bad deeds don't make him hate you. Your bad thoughts don't make him reject you. You are loved and approved and welcomed in his presence. And if your identity is rooted in that truth as a son of God, you can walk according to the spirit. But it's when we doubt who God is or who we are to him that all this mess rumbles up within us. I'll close with this quote from Tim Keller. What are the things of the spirit? How do we fix our mind on the things of the spirit? Tim Keller says this. We are to be preoccupied with our standing in Christ. We are to drill into our minds and our hearts his love and adoption of us. To mind the things of the spirit means never to forget our privileged standing or the fact that we are loved and to let this dominate our thinking, our perspectives, and therefore 
our words and actions. We are to be preoccupied with our standing in Christ. And if we do that, it will produce life and peace. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and are so grateful for the richness of this word and how you have not just given it in a moment, but you have architected it over thousands of years through humanity, that you are a God of faithful covenant love. You are a God who redeems his people. And we love you, Lord. Hey, if you're here or online, and let's take a moment to respond to this, if this is you. That type of love, that type of knowledge, that type of affirmation from the Father given to you as a free gift, if that's new to you, or now it's new, maybe you thought you knew and, and God is revealing something to you by his Holy Spirit now, and you want to respond to that, so we would say that's, that's committing your life to Christ or maybe rededicating your life to Christ. If you're in the room, would you raise your hand so I can see you? If you're online, just click the button in the chat. I just want to pray a prayer and take a moment. Okay. I see that hand. Okay. Let's just pray and just reaffirm this. If that's you, just, just pray this prayer. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for the gift of salvation through Jesus. Forgive me of my sin. I confess that my flesh is wrong within me, but I receive your atoning sacrifice and I make you, Jesus, Lord of my life from this day on. In Jesus' name.